so glad you could join us today. Riverside, as we have set out a mission for our church in this community where God has put us, Riverside is a fellowship in Christ, joyfully committed to gathering for him, growing in him, and going with him. And so we have gathered here today for the purpose of putting the focus upon Jesus Christ. We try to do so every single week. And how much more on the first day of the week to commemorate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Joyfully, we gather to praise his good and glorious name. What a joy it is to have you with us today. We live... And you know this. We live in a moment in time where there appears to be so much darkness. It seems that we can't go even one day without feeling some chronic pain in our bodies. We can't go even one day without bearing some hard reality in our relationships with others. We can't go even one day, it seems, without hearing some terrible news that is going on right here around us. And with all of this, we often feel the sorrow, the, the darkness that we know that we ourselves have caused through our own selfishness and our short tempers and the bad choices that we have made. And as time goes on, the weight of all of this darkness it seems to somehow get heavier in our lives, and it makes us feel sometimes pretty bleak, even about life itself. And we begin to crave for something that's bright, something to illuminate all of this gloominess that is around us, something that can make a change in us. And this is the wonderful thing about the message of Easter that when things seemed most bleak, a great light brought darkness-expelling hope into the hearts of hurting people. For when they thought that everything had collapsed around them, and it had, their world was turned upside down by the truth of an empty grave. And good news began to warm them up with radiant joy, the kind of warmth and the kind of joy that made them go boldly to nations with the message of this resurrected king. And we want you today to have this joy, for there is good news offered today. I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, there's a pew Bible in front of you, I think. And I would invite you to turn to pages 852 and 853 in the pew Bible. 852 and 853 in the pew Bible, or John chapter 20. Now, if you were with us on Friday night, Good Friday, when we considered the significance of the crucifixion of Jesus, then you'll recall that we began by looking at verses 30 and 31. Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And we did so because in those two verses near the very end of this book, we are told the reason why this very book was written. Now, I mentioned two days ago 
that the Bible is made up of 66 books in total, and John's gospel is but one of them. And it is a biography of Jesus Christ. But it is a biography with an incredibly high purpose because it relates truthful, crucial information that if we believe will actually guarantee eternal life for us. And that's not an overstatement. This is why it is called a gospel, because the word gospel simply means good news. It's a gospel because it is sharing the good news about Jesus. And here, near the end of this incredible biography about Christ, we find the reason why this account was written. Look with me at John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John, the writer of this book, an apostle of Jesus, one of the 12 original followers of Jesus, has given us the reason why he wrote this book. He's told us why he's given us this gospel. It was so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, which means the anointed king of God, sent to earth by God. And that by believing in this Christ, we would have life in his name. Now, understand, this life that he mentions here in verse 31 is the eternal life that John has referenced throughout this book of John. For instance, the very well-known verse, John 3.16, the one you'll sometimes see up at football games on TV and it'll make you go and look up the verse and read it. That's for a reason. Because John 3.16 says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is a book about eternal life. So this Gospel of John is a 21-chapter message of good news written about 2,000 years ago that you and I, the modern reader, even here today, Easter Sunday, Riverside Baptist Church, 2019, would read it, would consider it, would believe it, and my friends, we would have life through it. That's why he's given it. That we would have eternal life through Jesus. This is the light that is offered to you today, my friends, in the midst of all of your darkness. Today, you are being offered the sure and steadfast hope that through Jesus, your sins before God can be forgiven. You can have an eternal relationship with the one who created you. You can spend your eternal destiny with the Savior in heaven. And you can find strength to battle the sinful desires of your own heart. And with all of that, you can have wisdom and joy even now, even today in this dark world around you. That's a big offer. And all of this is made possible because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, not only died on the cross to pay the price for your sins and my sins, not only was he truly buried in a grave, but he rose again triumphantly as victor over all sin, over all death, and over all of hell. He did this. On Friday night, 
we considered the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. And it was a good but sad and solemn event. And I said that that message put us at a crossroad. That it puts us in a place where we have to choose whether to believe or not believe. And that one's choice about the cross has eternal ramifications. Heaven and hell ramifications. This morning, we see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ also demands a decision. So I ask you here at the beginning, I ask you, as you listen to John's account, would you believe and have the light of eternal life this morning? Let me pray. Lord God, I am but your messenger. You are God above, and you are capable of opening up people's eyes and hearts to good news. Would you please do that today, Lord, that the light of the gospel, of the glory of your risen Son might be seen and believed upon and savored by everyone here. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, before we begin to look at the resurrection account, I want to step back for just a moment to consider a couple of events in chapter 19 of John's gospel. If you'll look with me there, chapter 19 of John's gospel, look at verses 28 through 30, verses we considered on Friday night. Verse 28, chapter 19, says this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now this is Jesus. This statement, it is finished, this Incredibly important statement. It is finished. This is Jesus declaring that all that he set out to do at the very beginning, when he came at Christmas, that all that he set out to do was here, now on the cross, accomplished. That all of the work that God the Father had given him to do, which was ultimately the work of paying for his people's sins, was now finished. His death would now complete the perfect payment for the sins of sinners. So here he is at the last. He says it is finished. There is nothing more to do. He's taken all the pain. He's borne all the affliction. What he must now do is die. And so it says he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Understand Jesus' death was a life laid down. No one took it from him. He laid it down of his own accord for you and for me. He was God, the very Son of God, and here was God himself surrendering his life for his people. This, my friends, is the greatest act of love that has ever been displayed throughout the history of the world. God died for his people that they would have life. Now, notice verse 38 of chapter 19. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, 
came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Jesus was put in a grave because, understand, Jesus, the Son of God, was truly dead. He did not swoon or black out. He was not merely injured or unconscious. He was not sleeping. He was dead. Note verses 34 and 35 of chapter 19. It says, One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. It seems that after he had died, he'd given up his spirit on the cross. It seems to verify his death. The Roman soldiers, they pierced him with a spear in his side. And when they did so, blood and water came out. Now, I'm no doctor, but there are two logical explanations that one of the two could be right. Number one, the spear pierced Jesus' heart, possibly, where the blood from the heart and the fluid from the pericardial sac came out. That's one option. I got the heart, so white water and blood came out. The other option is his severely injured chest had filled with hemorrhagic fluid to the point that upon piercing his body, both the water and the blood, all of it, came out. My friends, he was dead. His body had collapsed. Jesus is telling the truth about the death of Christ here. John says in verse 35, that he bore witness. Jesus truly died, and my friends, the day could not have been much darker for those who knew him and loved him and followed him. Can you even, can you even imagine what this would have meant for his followers? Guys like John, who write, later writes this gospel. Can you even imagine what this would have felt like? Jesus had declared himself to be the Son of God. He had performed incredible miracles, verifying his declaration. He had taught them as one who had divine authority and who used that authority to rebuke the self-righteous religious leaders of their day. And he had made some incredible promises, including that God's bright kingdom was about to dawn upon this earth. And through all of this, these men and women, they followed him. But now, on what seemed the most terribly bad Friday... They looked upon the dead body of their Messiah and they took it and they placed it in a grave. The sorrow and the darkness that they experienced must have been unimaginable. But then came Sunday. Verse 1 of chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now Mary Magdalene, she came to the tomb, it says, on the first day of the week, which was Sunday, seemingly to signify that a new day had arrived, that brightness had burst into the world. The first day of the week came and something marvelous happened on it. Something that makes us come together here today on the first day of the week and worship the very reason why Riverside gathers every Sunday for worship. Mary Magdalene, who was once a demon-possessed woman, Luke chapter 8 tells us, but who now was a follower of Jesus, she came to the tomb of Jesus with other women, other gospels tell us, and it's interesting that it says that she came while it was still dark. Because for John, the writer of this book, throughout this gospel, he has been contrasting darkness with light, left and right. For instance, Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And here we see, on this most dark day, a light begin to shine. Not merely the light from the rising sun that was coming up, but the spiritual light from the risen Son of God who had come back from the grave. When she got to that burial site, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She evidently thought that his tomb had been robbed. That seems to be the sense of what she thinks here. Robbing of graves was actually a pretty common crime in that day, unfortunately. So much so that the Roman emperor Claudius, just a few years after Jesus Christ had died and been raised, ordered that capital punishment should be given for anyone who robs a person's grave. Well, Mary's response to this was to run to the 12 disciples, Peter and, he says here, the other disciple, who was John himself, the writer of this book. That's who this other disciple was. He was the writer of this gospel, who commonly referred to himself throughout this gospel as the other one, or the one whom Jesus loved. And she declared that they had taken the body away. They had taken the body away. She said, we do not know where they have laid him. This is a greatly troubled woman. This is a very sad woman. Her mind and heart had not yet been awakened to what had actually happened that morning, and she was simply afraid that someone had stolen the body. So Peter and John, two guys who had given up everything to follow Jesus and who would have felt the sting of his death most severely, they ran to the tomb. In verse 4, it says, they both ran but John outran Peter. Why in the world does it tell us that he outran Peter? Well, probably not for any wild reasons for our speculation, but simply as a validation by John himself, the writer, to show that he had personally been there for all of this and could account for every single detail. Remember, his purpose in this is to instill faith in you, the reader. So he wants to give it clear. He says, I outran Peter, but I wasn't the one who went in first. 
Peter and John, verses 5 and 6, they arrive at the tomb, and John, he merely looks in. Likely he was hesitant or fearful to go in. And be honest, can you blame him? This is a, a grave, after all. Well, well, Peter, true to character, true to form, he boldly charged in. And in verses 6 and 7, what they saw was the burial garments on the very place where his body had been laid. These were linen cloths that would have been wrapped tightly around Jesus' body. If you want a picture of what that would have looked like, think mummy, okay? Tightly wound around his body with spices that would have adhered to him like glue. And they were lying there. And the face cloth that went over his head was neatly folded into place by itself. And all of that is significant because no one had simply moved Jesus' body for all of the burial garments, including the adhesive linen cloths around him, were all laying there perfectly. No thieves would leave valuable linens lying around when the body was laid in such a place. No, it was a resurrected body that had passed through those garments, and the garments themselves remained there to testify to it. John saw... And he believed, it says, even though he had not previously connected Jesus' resurrection with the scriptures, verses 8 and 9 say. He believed that Christ had been raised from the dead, hereby showing that he was coming to faith in the resurrection based upon what he was seeing on that morning. But his belief was not at the point due to an understanding of what the Bible had been previously saying, that the Christ would have to rise again from the dead. My friends, did you know that the Old Testament scriptures, which were written hundreds of years before Jesus Christ walked on earth, prophesied that he would rise from the dead? That God said this would be before it was? King David, the ancestor of Jesus, who lived hundreds of years before Jesus, he prophesied accordingly when he wrote in Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, these words. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now David, the ancestor of Jesus, king of Israel, prophetically declared that the king who would come from his lineage would not be abandoned to Sheol, which is a Hebrew, an Aramaic translation of a word that means place of the dead. And he also says, nor would God let this Holy One see corruption, which means that his body would not decay in the grave. So King David says that this one who would come, he would not remain in the place of the dead. He would not be corrupted in the grave. And the apostle Peter, this same Peter who was at the tomb on that glorious day, he would later write these words in Acts chapter 2. He says to the Jews, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. So my friends, Scripture prophesied that Jesus Christ would rise, and here in John chapter 20, that's exactly what we see. 
And now, in verses 11 through 18, we see their sorrow turned into joy. It says in verse 11 that Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. In verse 11, Mary is back into the story, and she's weeping. Her deep and painful loss of Jesus was now combined with the apparent theft of his body, she thought. But then she looked into the empty tomb in verses 12 and 13, and she was spoken to by two angels, and they were dressed in white, it says. They had the appearance of men, and they... And they sat where Christ's body had been laid previously, one at where his head had been placed and one at where his feet had been placed. And they asked her a question, which I think reads a little bit more like a rebuke than just simply a question. They say to her, why are you weeping? Though she did not realize it, she had no reason whatsoever to be crying or mourning at that point, for the grave was empty for a wonderful reason. Her response was, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. She still thinks his body has been stolen. But then in verses 14 and 15, she turns around and there he was. But she did not recognize him. She supposes him to be the gardener. Evidently, people in that day employed others to go and beautify grave sites just like they do today. And she thinks it's the gardener. She has no idea that she has been speaking with Jesus, her Lord. And she even wonders if this gardener himself has taken the body away. She says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Oh, what a tender word by this woman. And I love that John, in his first account of the one who sees him raised, uses a woman. You know, in that day and age, the testimony of a woman in a Roman court of law would not be accepted, unfortunately. And yet the, the writers of the Gospels are so willing and so clear to say, yes, we believe the validation of a testimony of a woman. She was the first one to see him raised. Here we see her. What a tender word. She wants to bring the body back. But why could she not see him? Why could she not figure out who this was? Why did she not recognize Jesus? Well, evidently Jesus' appearance was somehow veiled somehow disguised from her, somehow different or unusual from his usual appearance. 
Somehow, in some way, this is the same Jesus, but with the body that has been transformed in such a way that he can now be unrecognizable. He does the same thing in Luke chapter 24 with two men. Bible scholar D.A. Carson, he writes this about this. He says, the resurrection accounts provide a certain tension. On the one hand, Jesus' resurrection body can be touched, handled, bears the marks of the wounds inflicted on Jesus' pre-death body, and not only cooks fish, but eats it. On the other hand, Jesus' resurrection body apparently rose through the grave clothes, appears in a locked room, and is sometimes not recognized. Now, the Apostle Paul, another follower of Jesus Christ, years later, described the distinction between the natural bodies that you and I, if we're here today alive, have today, the natural bodies that each of us has had formed in our mother's wombs, and the spiritual bodies that all believers will one day receive just as Jesus received. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 42 to 44, these words. So it is with the resurrection of what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. The spiritual body that Jesus exemplifies here in chapter 20 of John's gospel is a glorious mystery that all believers will one day understand with sight and touch and smell and sound. We will one day understand it because one day, my friends, all believers in Jesus Christ will also be raised like Jesus Christ and will have resurrection bodies like Jesus Christ. Which means one day not only is sin not going to be an issue anymore, but my body is not going to hurt anymore. Yesterday I spent an hour playing baseball with other dads with my kids, and I'm sore for the rest of the day, and it makes it hard to get up this morning. That's not going to be there anymore. This is an incredible hope for all of us who feel the pain of life, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, that right in our bodies there will be a transformation, no longer tempted by the flesh, no longer experiencing pain, but only joy in the Lord. Well, in verse 16, Jesus revealed himself to her. He simply said to her one name, one word, her name. He says, Mary. And immediately when, she, when he said it, she knew him. He simply uttered her name, and the sound of his voice somehow clicked, and the resemblance became perfectly clear that this was Jesus now, my friends, if you've read John's gospel, this should call to mind chapter 10. Because in chapter 10, Jesus says in verse 27, My sheep, talking about his spiritual sheep, human beings, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And when she heard his voice say, Mary, she knew it, that this was the one that she followed. And her response was to say so sweetly, Rabboni which is an affectionate word for my teacher. Can you imagine the elation she experienced? Can you feel just a little bit of the bliss that she would have felt that day? 
The Savior had been raised. All of his words were now proven true. And his simple utterance, her simple utterance, Rabboni, that utterance carries the essence of what Easter is all about, my friends. Our teacher, the one who authoritatively taught, who went to the grave for us, our teacher, our Rabboni, he has been raised. And in verse 17, Christ made a peculiar statement to Mary. He said, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Though this is debated, Jesus likely meant, I think, that Mary did not have to cling to him as if he was going to disappear immediately and forever. In other words, there would be more fellowship time between them, but she would need to be patient. He said, I have not yet ascended He would ascend. He would return back up to his father's side. But Mary would see more of him before he left. And instead of clinging to him, she now had a mission from him to carry out. She was to tell the other brothers, the disciples, about Jesus. She was to relate that not only was he alive, but that he would soon be ascending back up to the glorious father above. And Mary's announcement to them, to them in verse 18 is just extraordinary. She says, I have seen the Lord. Her sorrow had been turned into joy, and theirs would be too. He had risen, and he had been seen. My friends, you cannot physically see this morning the resurrected Jesus. But my friends, he has been raised just the same. You cannot say, I have seen the Lord with your physical eyes. But you can say the words, I believe him. The message of the cross, it puts us at a crossroad. And the truth of the resurrection puts us at a decision point. This is the gospel. It is the message of good news And this message puts us at a place where we have to choose whether to believe or not believe. And that one's choice regarding this has eternal ramifications. Either relationship with God forever in heaven or separation from God forever in hell. There is no bigger choice you will ever have put before you. My friends, Jesus Christ, he was crucified, he was buried, and he was raised for your salvation. He fulfilled everything that needed to be fulfilled for you to be forgiven and have a relationship with God forever. My friends, the God who created you is a holy God. He is a just God. He cannot abide sin And your sin has made a separation between you and God, the Bible tells us. You have wronged him. You have failed to give him the glory that he alone deserves. That is on you. That is on me. We have done this thing to the creator, the king, the sovereign one who reigns over the earth. We deserve his just punishment. And it will come if we don't turn. But... God sent his son, Jesus Christ, 
to die on the cross and rise again three days later to pay for your sins so that that chasm between you and God could be removed and the relationship could be restored. Your sins could be forgiven and you could say to him, my father, and he can say to you, my daughter or my son. And the way to receive this is by putting your faith and Jesus Christ for what he has done by rising again after dying to pay for your sins. It is the only way. And these things have been written by John and shared by us this morning that you would have believe. So my friends, thank you for coming, but let me ask you, would you please believe and have the light of eternal life today? It is offered. No one wants to stay in the dark. And my friend, your sin has put you in the darkest of places. You desperately need God to intervene. You desperately need his risen son to save you. And my friends, he will if you will repent, turning from your sins and embrace Jesus in faith for your life. You will be changed. Today, you are being offered the sure and steadfast hope that through Jesus, your sins before God can be forgiven. You can have an eternal relationship with the one who created you. You can spend your eternal destiny with the Savior in glory. You can find strength to battle the sinful desires of your heart. And you can know the wisdom and the joy even now, even today, in this so dark, bleak world around you. He offers this today. And all of this is made possible because the Son of God, Jesus Christ, not only died on that cross to pay the price for your sins, not only was he truly buried in a grave, but he rose again triumphant as victor over all sin, all death, and all of hell. He has done that for you. So will you repent of your sins and believe Jesus, receiving God's free gift of salvation? Now, we as a church, as part of our mission is to go with Jesus. It is to take this message that we've laid out over Friday and Sunday morning to this community and even to the world through our missionary outreach. This is what we're about. We want to grow. We want to be worshiping God and enjoying Him forever, as the creed says. We want that. But then we want that to pour out of us into other people. So my friends, if you know Jesus today, if you are a follower of the King, my friends, those who have been told about the resurrected Lord must begin to tell. We have got to stop being so apathetic. When you've got the greatest message in the world, why aren't you telling it? Your heart must be like Mary Magdalene, the sinful woman who became a follower of Jesus Christ, a holy saint because of the one she knew. Your cry must be like Mary Magdalene who says, I have seen the Lord. The cry of the resurrection must be your cry, my friend. So go boldly with this message that people might hear and they might be saved. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that if there would be hearts here 
that have been provoked about their sin and they sense the need to have their sin dealt with, forgiven and removed, that you, Lord, would not allow them to have any peace until they find the lasting peace that you provide through the gospel. I pray that they would come and talk with me or to someone else about their great need, right here after the service even, Lord. And I pray that, Lord, this would be a church in Newport Ritchie in West Pasco County that would go boldly with the gospel, that whether one of us is in our 80s or one of us is eight, Lord, you've given us the boldness to go and share, so help us to do that. Help us to build bridges with people. And Lord, help us to show them the reason for the hope that we have in us. We thank you for the resurrected Savior. We thank you that we serve him, that we worship him, Lord. Now help us to go forth and tell others about him. And we pray this in his name.